My name is Javier Hernandez, and this is who I am. Okay, today's guest is Javier Hernandez, and he is a leading DIY comic book creator. Um, he's known for his work on El Muerto, Dead Dinosaur, and his current, uh, more recent book, uh, Maniac Priest. Javier, welcome to the show. It's nice to be here, Jamie, and congrats on launching your new podcast. Thank you very much. Um, now, you are a, a dual creator. You, um, you are very much a DIY creator. You kind of... Uh, you start with an idea, and it seems like pretty quickly you you get an idea out there and start working on it and produce something pretty quickly. Are you? Uh, how, how do the stories come to you? How do you start your process off? What is your your routine? Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Like once I get started, you know, then I, I kind of hit the ball running. But there's like years before, like for instance, just driving out here to visit you, that gives me a good forty five minutes in the car just to think. So I do a lot of thinking. Um, I call it writing without pencil or pen or computer, mm-hmm. writing with my uh, brain cells, uh, just thinking of storylines, thinking of characters, thinking of stories. And then when I nail down a character, and I'll do sketches, of course. I always have to visually have the character, like visually in front of me. So I design the characters. But the stories I think of in my head as I'm just, like I said, got a lot of free time. So when I sit down and do the story, I don't do a full script. Like you mentioned, I write and draw my own comics. Mm-hmm. So I kind of do what they used to call Marvel method. Yeah. Whereas, in case your listeners don't know, so the, the old Marvel comics, Stan Lee, the writer editor, would call in one of the artists, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, whoever, and he'd, he'd kind of just give him a rough idea of, hey, I got this idea for a character, on a spider guy, climbs on walls, whatever, lives with the, lives with the aunt and uncle, blah blah blah, and then the artist would go home and pretty much devise the story. That's the way I understood it, like just draw it all out. And then they give it back to Stan. And so Stan's looking at these completed pages and he kind of just has to fill in the blank word balloons. Mm-hmm. So the artist kind of wrote the story already, you know, based on the plot given to them. So what I do, I think of the story, I do the thumbnails, I'll draw like whatever, 20, 30 pages of the comic in rough pencil form and I'll edit it, you know, erase here and there, fix it. And then if I'm satisfied, then I'll draw it again on the large paper with pencil and, and ink and then I'll scan it in the computer, then letter it. Mm-hmm. So there's never a script. Like if you if you broke into my place and looked for, like, let's find his secret scripts, <laughs> right? The unpublished stuff he hasn't done. There's no scripts. There's a lot of drawings. You're right. And character sketches and some. I don't I don't do many environments. I just pretty much just worry about the character. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that when I start writing, when you actually see words coming out of me, it's when I'm at the computer after the art's been done, mm-hmm. and I just gotta figure out. You know the place, uh, the, just the right wording for each word balloon in each panel. Right now, the the good and bad thing about that is because I do not want to redraw something. So if I have a panel where two people are talking, whatever, and I, and there's not enough room for that word balloon in there, for what I want to be going on, I'll that's what I'll edit though. I mm-hmm. found out I t- turn out to be a good editor of myself of my writing. I can cut out two or three sentences sometimes. Uh, which is terrible to think that I had that many extra sentences to begin with in the word <laughs> balloon, right? But I can cut out or reword something or find a better way to say it. So I actually find it helps me a lot just to learn how to write. 
yeah. to write in that process. So that's basically how you do it. Right. So one man band, uh, art first, then the actual dialogue, and then um, all the production, all the boring production work, and right. then off to the printer. Okay. And you mentioned uh, Steve Ditko. He's, uh, I think he's one of your, it's safe to say, one of your heroes. It seems like you, you um, take a lot of inspiration from his, his storytelling style and also from his longevity and uh, creativity. Is, there, um, is that uh, fair to say? Yeah, no, and he actually listed the right things. I mean, it's the work he does, you know, the way he solves problems on the page, right, with the stories he does and the characters and whatever. And then the length of his career... Jeez, the guy's going to turn 90 this year. and So it's talking about like a, I don't know, 60-year career, which I, will, I won't get that long. I started late in life. And just the way he handles himself as far as, you know, just following his own voice and instincts. Mm-hmm. It's kind of made him, uh, I don't want to say a pariah, but it kind of puts him on the outskirts of the industry sometimes because he's doing his own self-published stuff. And some of the stuff he does, you know, philosophically people don't agree with it, but... I just like the fact that he just does what he wants to do, mm-hmm. and he's not worried about the aftermarket, really. I mean, he gets it published by his partner, his longtime friend, Robin Snyder, and they put it out there. But I think from there, Dicko moves on to the next thing. Now, I'm a little different because I'm trying to get my work. I mean, you know, I, he achieved success at the Spider-Man level. I mean, the guy basically co-created Spider-Man. So when he started at that super high level and then everything else you do kind of just goes from there, I'm, I'm starting at the bottom. It's kind of unknown still, even after... 17, 18 years, but um, the instinct to just do my own thing and, you know, whether, whether it comes out right or wrong, you stand by it and then go on to your next project. So, yeah, I take a lot of inspiration from him, definitely. And uh, you, you said you started 17 years ago. Were you doing anything before that? It was, um, was it always something that you wanted to do in comic books, but you feel like you made the leap 17 years ago, or was that a, a decision that you made at that point that it was something you were going to start to do? Yeah, you know what? It's uh, like I said, I got a late start as far as most creators. I see these people in their twenties down, late twenties, you know, just working their way through the business. Um, I had always been in art. I was an art director prior to doing the comics at a screen printing firm. So I wasn't anything super creative. We're just kind of doing the assignments the customers gave us. But that's where I learned all my uh, like pre press, Mm -hmm. which is very important for a DIY guy because a lot of people who start self publishing they don't know anything about. When you know, the printer says, hey, can you like set it up CMYK or a PDF? Like, what's all that? Mm-hmm. So I learned all that in the screen print business. But I always had a yearning to do comics because as a kid, like most of us, um, you, you know, you grow up loving the thing that you get into. So we, I loved comics as a kid. But at one point, I was listening to your first episode somewhere in the 90s. A lot of us turned out in the 90s. <laughs> a lot of us grew up in the 70s and 80s, those era of comics. I don't want just the 90s because I know a lot of people love the 90s. But they seemed like they weren't speaking to us anymore, so we kind of got away from it. But I want, So I kind of broke away from wanting to like be another Iron Man artist or Daredevil artist. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to create my own stuff. So by the mid-90s, friends of mine were already self-publishing. And I was just learning about, wow, people have been self-publishing since you know 60s, really. Ninja Turtles were huge in the 80s. Um, so by the mid nineties, I decided I wanted to do my own comics. So I was just kind of buying a lot of self-published comics, you know, just kind of, you try to learn about the business and Mm -hmm. try to read about these guys and how they go about printing and conventions. So by the time 90, the mid nineties came around, I figured, okay, I got to get my own book done, my own idea, my own character, which is what I came up with El Muerto. So by 98, I published my first book Mm -hmm. 
So it's, you know, 98 is not that long ago, I guess, but there's more resources, obviously, today. I mean, the world's changed digitally-wise. So you got a lot of uh, advantages if you're going to start off today, right? Yeah. Do your artwork, put it on the net. You're doing, a pod, you're doing your own radio show, basically, on your computer. Um, when I started in 98, when I started, <laughs> you know, we still had to print. And, you know, I remember I still have in my house the film, the, the film negative from the printer. Oh, wow. That's kind of cool to have that. It's yeah. Like, it's all the stripped up film negative of, the, of my first comic. A lot of people probably don't even know what that is, but it's like I, I treasure that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, basically late 90s just jumped right in. Right. How many uh, copies did you have to print back then? Uh, well, you know what? I, I, I went really low key. I went to, uh, I think they're still around, Office Max or Copy Max. Yeah, so I printed it there. It's like a Staples. Okay, yeah. Or a FedEx, whatever. FedEx, uh, not FedEx, Kinko's. Yeah. Yeah, so I did 300 copies mm-hmm. of that first book. And I think I did another printing of about, about 150. So if you got one of those black and white El Muerto comics, I guarantee you there's less than 500 ever made. So it's pretty rare. <laughs> but um, I ended up doing bigger print runs in the early years uh, with what they call offset printing. Yeah. Um, so the minimums there were 3,000 copies. Mm-hmm. Which sounds like a lot. What's a lot is the money. It's that was about two thousand dollars for right. three thousand copies. Two thousand is a lot of money, right? As opposed to maybe five hundred bucks paying at Copy Max. But two thousand bucks for three thousand copies gets you like a comic for about forty two cents or something like that. Yeah. So if you sell it for three bucks, making pretty good profit. Mm-hmm. But it got difficult after a while just financially to keep doing that. So thank God, uh, print on demand came about. Yeah. Where you can print you know, a couple of copies and there was some pitfalls there, but it was, a, it wasn't on my end. It was a printer was uh, doing really good pricing on his comics. And I told him, Hey, so how do we work this? Like I want to do a hundred copies of this new book. He's all, okay, I'll send you the books and then I'll send you the invoice. You can pay me after. And my first thought was, okay, I'm going to pay the guy cause I'm honest, but boy, that's going to set him up for someone's going to screw him up. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, he's sending books out to people. Anyway, Poor guy went under, and uh, but you know there's plenty of other print-on-demand, so I, I use that. And a lot of people, like I said, the modern tools. A lot of people are doing print-on-demand because there's so many now. Mm-hmm. Or you can find overseas printers, um, or just you know print wherever you want, or print online. So yeah, there's no way there's no way you can't get your work out there though. Yeah, yeah, no, so there's if, so there's so many avenues now, yeah. and there's so many ways of. Uh, you're, the, you're the only one holding yourself back. Yeah, at this, exactly. at this point. So, um, did you do you find that you have you've built a fan base from those early days that have continued following your work, or is it do you, do you find that there's like a continuing need to keep letting people know that what you're doing is is still happening, or that you're creating stuff? And you know, it's interesting. There was the time before. I mean, the internet's been around even when I was back in '98, but it was about building a fan base. You know, per shop, going through every shop and signing and doing conventions. You had that physical fan base and then when the internet really kind of kicked off whatever you, i don't know what the point is you know myspace or facebook whatever then i noticed okay i got the second group now the second era of fans who never met me but they'll see my work online or they, they buy the stuff online but now it's funny even even in that internet era what i'm finding now is you kind of got to refresh because like for instance now i have uh like on facebook like i'll have a whole new crop of followers right or friends whatever you call it over the last two or three years, I go, well, you know what? I can post some old stuff from four years ago. They never seen it. So it's kind of funny. You got to kind of keep refreshing uh, your product as far as letting them know what you've done and 
showing. I like showing the old stuff just to let people know I've been around a while. Yeah, right. So it's just interesting with the Facebook. And then, like, you know, then if I get on Instagram, that's a new platform for me. Mm-hmm. So, like, okay, now it's this other new, even though some of the fans are on the various platforms, mm-hmm. you still get new fans on Instagram that you didn't have on uh, Twitter. So it's just, in, it's kind of maddening because what's going to be the next social network? Yeah. Then am I going to jump on that? And then, okay, now I got to build a new fan base. So, but it's all about still creating, like creating mm-hmm. the new ideas, creating those new stories, getting them out there, and then figuring out what the hell all this social networking, you know, where it's going to end or where, you know, what it's going to evolve into next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where do you get your inspirations from? Um, I think they're just sitting there like over the decades at this point. Right. All these different ideas, uh, just looking at the way other people have done stories. I mean, like I'll look at John Carpenter's work, uh, filmmaker John Carpenter, and I get a lot of inspiration from the way he approaches stories and subjects and characters. But then I can also look at like, uh, like a film score, like a composer, like, uh, uh, the guy who did all the old classic Godzilla scores, uh, Akira Efekube, I think his name is, or John Barry does all the Bond scores. Mm-hmm. Just listening to the scores, separate from the movies, that just gives me ideas. Yeah, you and know? like you said about the the, the way that you you can uh, bring work from the past forward, like your own work. There, there's kind of this nice cycle right. at the moment where you're introducing people to these ideas. Like the the uh, Maniac Priest has got this very much. Um, it's the storytelling is very ingrained in these kind of eighties, uh, like Michael Winner um, yeah. films of uh, uh, revenge and 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 uh, a lot of people didn't grow up right. knowing about those films, like Death Wish and stuff like right, that. Right. So it kind of taps into that idea that where you have this this group that are nostalgic to that, and also this group that are new to that. And um, right. it seems like you kind of straddle that quite well. And yeah, yeah, it's like it's like talk about bringing stuff from from your past that you grew up with, and then. You put it out there, and then you know there's there'll be other people doing something like that. Like we're talking about these '80s vigilante movies. Mm-hmm. I see stuff, you know, um, by other artists doing similar stuff, and then you can tell they're influenced by the same thing. And then, like you said, younger fans or fans who were never into that stuff growing up, it's kind of interesting to them. I think what's neat is, well, I hope they like my work, but maybe they'll go check out some old DVDs and you know go find a. DVD copy of The Exterminator or something and be shocked by <laughs> what they see and, and maybe enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all about, you know, I mean, I don't know. We, we, get, we can get trapped, I guess, regurgitating, quote unquote, too much old stuff. I mean, I hear criticism of that, not just of me, but like in general, like, but it's like putting a new spin on something. I mean, yeah. How many, you know, you still see. Uh, in the cinema, what cops and robbers movies? Yeah, right, crime films, whatever, yeah. police films. This, those have been around since what the thirties? Yeah, in exactly. Movies? Yeah, that you was... just put a, your own spin on it, um, and those people are always going to like those stories. Yeah, so. like the classical idea that there's only seven stories, and it's how you tell them. It's kind of like right, a, right, a, a right. Yeah, right. So how many times can you slice that? So and add your own thing. I mean, it's, I, I think it's really your voice. Like when I'm buying a John Carpenter movie, or you know, uh, Michelle uh, Fife. Copra comic, mm-hmm. like I'm buying it for their work and their characters and the story, but I'm I'm really paying for their voice. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's how I figure. So hopefully people are buying my stuff because they like it, whatever visually, the character, the idea. But what they're getting is my my voice on like that type of story, that type of character. So that's and that's what I do as a consumer. You know, when I buy somebody's work, it's it's not being so much in love with the characters. It's like 
you know, I grew up a, a Marvel fan back as a kid. But I don't have this great love, like, today, like, for, you know, like Daredevil or Spider-Man. It's like, well, I love Frank Miller's Daredevil. Yeah. Or I love the old Gene Colan, Stan Lee Daredevil. It's not so much like, well, let me just buy every single Daredevil comic, you know, for the last 30 years. I mean, I know fans do that, and that's, that's fine. But I'm not in love with the, so much the character, but it's like the author's interpretation. Yeah. Of, yeah. Of, of the material. And it feels like the... Um I mean, we were kind of lucky in the, the 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 two waves, especially with Marvel books. You had the wave in the '60s that was a real fresh voice right. to comics, and then you had the the second wave in the '70s into the Bronze Age, <clears throat> where it really felt like um, the creators were uh, part of the process. That you got a real sense of a distinct right. voice that moved away from from this very uh, uh, this this very simple formula that right. Marvel used to have, and. Um, I'm not saying that that's lacking now, but I think it definitely has, uh, in my opinion, it's moved into independent comic book production and into this this kind of DIY world of comic book production where the voices are clearer. And like you mentioned, Michelle Pfeiffer's um, right. Copra, which is excellent. You know, yeah. on, on the surface, you could say, oh, it's just a Suicide Squad homage. But right. it, you start reading it and you see how creative he is as a storyteller and you right. get a real sense of him in, in the book and he's, his skill in telling a story. And also, this is a Michelle Pfeiffer party here. But yeah, I mean, it's his work ethic. I mean, I think his books are almost monthly. Yeah. It's a yeah. hell of a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, he does, because he does his own hand coloring and stuff like that. So, you know, I look at old guys like Dicko, but then there's a lot of modern people who are still kicking butt mm-hmm. and uh, inspiring too. So, just got to find that stuff and support it. Yeah. Yeah. And what about you? When it comes to creating, what, how, how long does it take you from when you have that initial idea and you decide that you want to tell a story with a, with a character? How long does it take you to get from from your mind to the page and out to the readers? Yeah, uh, on a couple of recent projects, it's been pretty good. Um, I know like Maniac Priest and like this other one I did a year ago, Les Voodoo Sons. Um That one I knocked out very quick. I mean, it was probably within, I don't know, five or six months. Um from when I started drawing it, like I said, the ideas were there. But some stuff can take forever. Right. I mean, like I'm working on this El Muerto graphic novel, and I put out the first 22 pages as a comic uh, recently, just last fall. And it's, but it's just yeah, it's it's a, it's a full story, but it's just like the first chapter. I, cause I wanted to get something out there, like well, I'm working on this huge monster. So that one's so big, I'm actually I take breaks from it and start working on other little things. Mm-hmm. Again, these are the pitfalls I, I mentioned about being DIY, being your own boss, where, well, you can set your own schedule and you haven't made promises to, like, comic shops or whatever. It's going to be here on March 3rd. You just kind of, you can, you know, I do. You know, I can kind of bounce it around. But I guess there's good and bad in that because people are, like, waiting and waiting and waiting. But it's like, well, I'm my own boss, so, you know, I told myself I could move it off to the side for now and then get back to it. Mm-hmm. So when it comes out, it's like your magnum opus. You know, you're going to work on it for years. <laughs> Like, what's that thing Terry Gilliam was trying to do? Um, um, Lost in La Mancha. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's, maybe we'll never do it, but there's, there's, there's something kind of neat about, like, oh, there's that long lost project. It's finally getting out there. Yeah, they kind of take on this mythical quality. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, you can, as, a, as the publisher, you can use that as hype. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, you got to do your own hype too as a DIY guy. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, like you mentioned, uh, the, the, having that knowledge of pre-press and the process of actually getting uh, material printed. Right. And in the DIY world, I mean, you you create, write, draw, letter, color, publish, and, then, yeah, then, and promote, and produce, and it's 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 everything. And you got to pay. You got to pay the printer. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you got to pay with your money. That's why I tell younger folks, like, well, that means everything. You keep all the money, but... Um, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's not better than someone working on, you know, a dark horse book or something. It's just different. Yeah. And for me, that's all I've really done these last 18 years. And it's just, I'm just so used to it and it just feels right. Like getting the book out, like, okay, well, every aspect of it was something, you know, that I did. Mm -hmm. And like I said, there may be things where an editor might've seen things or may have questioned, you know, this story element or would have caught this or that typo, but you know, it's just having the, I don't know if it's the word confidence, but just, okay, it's out there. It's done, you know, and it is what it is. Hope you enjoy it. And I'll, I'll go work on the next thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I've seen it around a few times recently, this idea of like, it's, it's not that it's perfect. It's that it's done. And that's like a real, yeah. You hear a lot of people say that. Yeah. I think I've even heard like Carpenter say that on his commentaries. Um, I mean, yeah. What's perfect. I mean, let's rhetoric. Like, what is perfect? Uh, you could ask an individual artist. They're working on something. Start fixing it. Ask them, well, what's, when's it going to be ready? I'm just curious. I'm not being sarcastic. When is it going to be perfect? Or when is it going to be ready? I mean, so my stuff's ready when I, when I think, quote, unquote, when I feel it's ready. And, um, you know, I look back at my real older stuff, and, like, everybody, I could wince at it. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, that's really bad. <laughs> But not where it's going to handicap me or like cripple me where I'm not going to start working on another book. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's stupid. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely have to learn. That's, that's the thing that a lot of people, I think there's a, I, I think there's been this, this shift um, for independent creators where the, the ability to get the quality of work out to a professional standard right. is, is now so available to everyone, you know, because you have the internet, because you right. have uh, print on demand and, and all these methods of delivery that some people kind of freeze themselves up and, and feel like that the first thing has to be perfect. The first thing right. has to express everything and they don't give themselves room to learn. I tell people, I try to, like I said, especially younger artists. Nowadays, everyone seems younger than me, but um, I go, if I had the same, because, you know, this, I go, where's your book at? Like, well, you know, I don't feel it's right. I go, you know, if I would have had that mentality and I pull out the, the first book I did, like, I never would have got started. Mm -hmm. So... You know, again, you have to decide on your own. But I was reading this interview. I, I read this book on Clint Eastwood about, you know, it was just talking about him as a storyteller, which is not just like reviewing each film, but his process. And there's a quote in there. I wish I should have pulled the page out, but he's talking about like he reads about directors or hears directors kind of second guessing themselves, mm -hmm. all, like, you know, you know in a, on a DVD commentary or whatever. And he figures if they're being, you know, if they're doing that, they have, you know, what's why are they even in the business? Like, oh, that, that's pretty interesting. Mm, yeah. He, he, I don't think he's saying that he's perfect. I think he's saying that. Well, I got my 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 film done. I put it out. It's done. Yeah, now you I'll delivered. Go to the next one. Yeah. It doesn't. No, it's not. Doesn't mean to crap all the stuff out either. I don't think. But just uh, yeah, I, I've long gotten over that whole thing about getting it so called whatever perfect is, mm -hmm. and I just feel I feel satisfied when the story's done. It's like, okay, I got that story out the way I think I wanted to get it out. It's out. Mm -hmm. And then 
Besides, when you get older, I think you realize, get to the next one, man. Get to, <laughs> you're not one of these 25-year-old kids, you know, running around with their Ninja Turtle t-shirts and whatever, and, oh, my book's not ready yet. My book's not ready. It's like, it's ready. I'm not ready for my next book. Yeah. And you have, uh, you have your, your, your store. Um, what books do you have on there at the moment? Oh, on my website? Yeah, the web shop. Uh, what I have up there, I, have, I do have, yeah, the recent stuff, Maniac Priest, uh, the, the Neil Alberto comic. Um, I'll even put up like uh, original art, mm-hmm. original art of characters. I, you know, I'll, I'll do like my own take on Spider-Man or whatever. Right. And do you keep you keep stuff in like if you, if you see a demand for it, do you keep it in print, or do you like to let the, the the print sell out and like sit back and let it let the story out there? Sometimes what I do, like um, one time I was looking at, it, I had like about three or four books on a print. I go, oh, this would be a perfect time to put a trade paperback collection out mm-hmm. so then put it out in trade paperback collection and again we're talking about modern methods so i put mine up on amazon because amazon has their own printing uh print on demand company, right great space mm-hmm. which is a great service because you put the books on there and you can get buy copies for yourself whatever but it automatically goes on amazon so a lot of people just for whatever reason they'd rather buy something from amazon than from your own site I don't care. You're not going to hurt my feelings because, you know, I get my Amazon statements like, okay, people are buying the books. Right. And they get bought by people you never met. That's one, that's one thing that's a little different for me because I'm used to, if I sell it on my website or in person, obviously, like, okay, I have a name for the person. Like, oh, it's so-and-so from Ohio. So send them the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really funny. Most of my life I've, I, I've known the person who buys the book, right? Because it's either in name or in person. Or unless I lease them at a store. But now through Amazon, it's like, okay, well, I got, you know, I sold like 10 copies of this book in this quarter. Like, I don't know who bought it and it doesn't matter because I got my royalty and the book sold. I'm glad that people are reading the books. Yeah. So, again, it's all about uh, these modern methods of getting books out there. Mm. Digital, you know, Amazon's a big thing. Uh, Comixology, right? Mm-hmm. The digital, I think, don't you have some books on? I do, yeah. It's a digital uh the digital, um, what do you call it, PDFs, whatever. It's a yeah, it's a digital platform. Right. Right? They have a the a read model that they have on their um, like a system of it tries to recreate as though you're turning the page. Oh, I see. Right, has a, a thing called panel flow. I think is right, the, right. the method it has, where it kind of almost like a little movie moves around the page and. Oh, it does. Okay, mm-hmm. so you don't have to right. So, it, how, but how do you know? How does it know how fast you're reading? Um, you tap it, so um, right. it's like a you know an, an interactive. Right. Flow. Yeah. Yeah, because you would want some robot telling yeah, you how no. fast. It is. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the whole thing about a comic? They say like, well, you can open the page and you pick the speed you're gonna read. Yeah. Right. Because we sit and watch a movie, you got to watch it at you know as long as the image is on the screen. Mm-hmm. But the comics, we've always said, oh, well, you can read it at your own pace. So. Yeah. Yeah, there's more immersive uh, feel to them. Right? right, right. You know, some people read them for the images, some people read them for the words, and right. some people read them for both. And I, mean, I guess you're, you're supposed to read them for both. <laughs> other than that. But you're right. I know people, when I look through old comics, I just look through the art. Mm-hmm. You know, just, I mean, if you already read the book, and just kind of reliving it. Right. Yeah. When I was reading um, uh, monthly books, I would, initially, I would do a read-through where I would just read the words and just get through... Um, and so the, the artwork wasn't the, the thing that 
that sold it to me. It was more the writer, and then. Uh, but I mean, you're reading. Second. You're reading the. But I mean, you're seeing like the picture, right? I mean, Kinda, I used or to you really just glance. I used to really oh. just take like there. There would be times where I'd miss so much stuff because I was just doing this one read through, and I'd, I'd go back and read it again. But that initial read through would just be for the the writing and. Uh, well, if you read a Chris Claremont book, that wouldn't be a problem because he, have a, <laughs> he would describe what the artist drew so you wouldn't have to look no, at the exactly. art like, oh, I'm pulling this tree out of the ground. <laughs> okay, thanks. But, <laughs> you know, one thing about um, writing, you know, on, on that thing about writing versus what's already on the page, one, for me, one neat thing about drawing the art first mm-hmm. is like the action's already, like when I draw this stuff because there's no dialogue at all. I'm doing a whole book of just art, basically, in the beginning, because I don't have to dialogue. I, I work really hard, and I think it comes across a lot, where you, you get the emotional sense of the character hmm. without a word balloon or someone else saying, oh, poor so-and-so, he looks terrible, he's dead, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I noticed that thing. Over, I didn't think about that at first, but over the years, when people would write me and say, God, I really love your characters, because, you know, blah, 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 they got this real emotional life to them. And I go, and I started realizing... It, it's probably been a good. It was probably a good idea. I did that in the beginning, at least for me, because the, the characters are already living before there's any dialogue. Mm. Obviously, the dialogue is important to get the story across. I, I think you know, as good as storytellers you are, there's so much nuance and information in, in the dialogue that has to come across. Yeah, I mean, there's some masters that can do wordless comics. Yeah, um, and I, and I could do too. It's it'd be a certain type of story, but yeah, it's a story where you have like. You know, things have to be discussed between characters and, you know, specific details. Mm-hmm. You definitely need the word balloons, but... Well, your art style is very dynamic. That's that's one thing that I think lends itself to that, and I think maybe that comes from that process where you... Right. You, you see the... It, the characters do emote. It's very... It's almost theatrical, the way the, the characters right, yeah. behave in the panel, so... Yeah, they want to make sure the people in the, the back rows... Yeah. Right, like in theater, <laughs> is that how it is? In theater, you're, you're, I think you're more, you're more physically... Mm-hmm. Dramatic, so I, I mean I've never been a big. I'm not. I don't. I don't dislike the theater. I've never been exposed to a lot of plays and such. But I mean, just talking to you about that, um, I should go check out some plays and get the cheap seats in the back. Yeah, and just you know enjoy the performance, you know, and um, see how it influences my my storytelling after. Yeah, that, you know, when I'm looking at something like a cartoon or another comic or a film, you know, you like first and foremost, I'm enjoying it as a consumer, but you can't help but put your own creative hat on and not so much like, oh, how would I do that different? It's like, oh, if I do a scene like that in my book, how would I do that? Right, yeah. So, I mean, you don't want to sit there and second guess. You know, I could do that with a, a DC movie. And I, could, I wouldn't have done that, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think there is a tendency now to um, the, the, people have this uh, lack of just being able to relax as a consumer and just sit back and let stuff like enjoy the thing for what it is. Um, to to sit back and say like you know I read that book and I enjoyed it. It's right. fine to have that. Or I, I watched that movie and I enjoyed it. And what I do th- you think people are doing? Like, consumers? I think there is a. I think most consumers now are so aware of. The process, right? That it's true. They start to to think like, well, I would do this differently, or why didn't they use this method right. in their storytelling? And I think you know, there's there is a loss 
of the art cons of consuming, but there is also this, um, you know, it's, it's good that people are aware of how stuff is done, but I think you need to sometimes just enjoy that stuff has been made. And you know, I guess now we're in, you know, we're in what, 20, 30 years now of like DVD commentary. So yeah, yeah. I can see what you're saying where, yeah, everybody sees how something's made now. And then there's so many like, uh, well, I do it too. There's so many process blogs or on movies, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Star Wars have like a daily video? Like, here's what we're doing. Pretty much, yeah. So, I mean, you, you, you don't give away the secrets, but yeah, you're right. People see so much. And that's interesting, yeah. And they start second-guessing how they would have done it. Yeah, well, like I said, when I, watch, when I read something for the first time or see it, I, I can pretty much get immersed in it. Because, you know, it's, we're fans. Like, you know, just show me some great cinema or great comic. Mm. And when I say great, I don't mean it has to be like Academy Award winning. I mean... The last Godzilla was awesome. I love the, the recent one. It just came out. Right. Even the old Dolby ones, that's great cinema. <laughs> just, you know, some, like a spectacle or something. Yeah, something that you enjoy. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's important to enjoy stuff, and it's important. To and when I say spectacle, it doesn't have to be like a gigantic monster fight in the city. It just could be a good story. Yeah. You know, like there's one artist I really love, um, cartoonist. His name's uh, Jason. That's just the name mm -hmm. he goes by. He's published from Fantagraph. I think yes. he's Norwegian. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of anthropo. I mean, his stuff is very quiet, quote unquote. I just love looking at his comics. Yeah, yeah, he gets amazing, amazing expression across with the. It's like the, the uh, dogs yeah. with no pupils in their eyes, right. and and there's something really emotive about um, about how he presents them, and like the, just the simplest drawing of a character in a panel with not much happening really gets across a lot of story. It's it is amazing because it's, it's not like a Tex Avery reaction mm -hmm. where the guy's all you know whoa, whoa, with the eyes popping out. It's his little subtle, yeah. I mean, he's a fantastic artist. Mm. I reckon, like, one of my favorite books of his uh, favorite comics I've ever read was, uh, I think it's called Hey, Wait. Mm -hmm. About these two kids, and then one, you know, one of them dies, and it shows how the kids, the other friends, affected by it. And, um, yeah, it was one of the most immersive stories I've ever read. It's real touching, too. And, like I said, it's real subtle. But that death in the middle of the book really clobbers you over the head, and it does the main character too. And I, I, when I first read that book, I said like, if you want to give an art a comic book kit to somebody, you know, give them like a little box with Bristol board, paper, pencils, eraser, ruler, and that book. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, this is all the comic school you need. <laughs> I mean, you need more than that. But I thought that was such a great story that he conveyed. You know? Yeah. So that's a great. So it's called Hey Wait. By Jason from Fanographics. I really recommend um, take the time to try to track that down. Yeah, I'll put a link in the, the episode notes. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. He's got a new book coming out this year. It's autobiographical. Mm -hmm. I guess he turned 50 and he did this. I guess there's this famous walk, I think in Spain. It's called El Camino, the walk. And people take it. You know, I don't know. It's between two villages or whatever. So that'll be interesting to read. He takes this 50 mile, I think it's 50 mile, 50 mile walk. So anyway, I'm sure it'll be a great read. And, um, you know, most of the stuff I've done, I, I, I want to start doing maybe smaller, qu well, quieter story, like maybe more human interest stories. Because mm -hmm. um, most of the, basically all the stuff I do is, um, I guess you call them superheroes, right? I, what I call it, um, haunted heroes and heroic monsters. <laughs> Which basically, if you grew up in 70s Marvel, right? All yeah. the monster heroes and the tragic heroes. Ben Grimm or Werewolf by Night, Ghost Rider, Morbius. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I love those. I love those type of. I love telling those type of fantasy stories, good guys and bad guys. 
because I mean the comics can be anything, but it's such a great medium for doing, you know, supervillains, you know, these theatrical, operatic, over the top, ridiculously so, yeah, evil, you know, villains, and then these these heroes. In my case, I like doing these haunted heroes where I've always liked the idea of these. You know, I was always attracted to those the early Marvel ones, like you're talking about the '60s, like the Hulk or the Thing. Where they're monsters, they're kind of effed up. Yeah. And, and Peter, even Peter Parker screwed up life. Like, why are they spending time helping people? Yeah. And, and it, which is honorable. I've always know? thought that the, the Spider Man origin is like the perfect origin. It's, oh, man. it's like a Greek tragedy, the origin. I mean, that, without overblowing it. No, it's no. Such it's such a simple idea and it really gets across why he does what he does. And yeah, there's so, it's, a, it's got a, it's a great dynamic to it, right? Like, you could have stopped that guy. Mm-hmm. But you got cocky because all of a sudden you got fancy powers, and you didn't stop that one criminal, and he goes and kills your uncle. Yeah, no, that's not a spoiler alert at this point. Sorry, <laughs> man. If you haven't seen one of the movies by now or the cartoons or something, but yeah, it, it is a classic story, and um, that's why I'm a big fan of the uh, the old Incredible Hulk TV show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with Bill Bixby, mm-hmm. and um, in fact, it's funny as a kid. I didn't really mind or care that it wasn't like the TV, like the comic, that there wasn't a rhino or an abomination yeah. or, you know, the army chasing him every issue and things blowing up. I really liked the uh, Bruce Banner characters portrayed by Bixby. And, you know, it's so tragic because he's always on the run, right, from the media, the Dan McGee, a great character. Um, <laughs> he's, on, he's on the run. He's, like, his wife died in that ac- in the early accident. And... He's got this curse, turns into this freaking monster he can't control and he's terrified of. So like he he shows up in a city, right? He gets a job. He's always getting a job like in a chemical plant or some medical thing where he can try to find a cure for himself after hours when no one's paying attention. No one wonders why the janitor's like working in the lab at night, but so he he you know, he he makes this new identity in this new town. Okay, he's undercover and he's working on a cure. And then he gets involved with somebody where they're in an abusive relationship or, you know, the, the mobs after him and he gets involved. He tries to help him. And it's like, wow, why would he just stay low? You know, stay low and don't get involved. But that's yeah. what's the beauty about him. Yeah. I mean, he's a doctor. So I guess the doctor's oath, we got to help people. Yeah. So it's, it's a great, it's a beautiful, tragic, uh, heroic story. And I think a lot of that TV show finds itself, finds its way in my work. Mm-hmm. In one way or the other, that character, that idea of that type of character, right? But you know, I want to do other stuff, just you know, Harvey P. Carr style, just regular people doing regular things, mm-hmm. buying day old bread, and I just watched the movie again, American Splendor. Yeah, I think I watch it like every year and a half. I love it's a great film. So anyway, all types of stories to be told still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think a lot of people um, with comic books, there's there's definitely. Because of how DIY has changed the landscape and because of how um, it feels like mainstream, the American superhero comic is kind of being pushed to one side to, to exist in its own little world right. now. And there is this, this, this growth of different storytelling and, and you know the, the scope and scale of what is being told. Although sometimes they're those smaller human interest stories that the way that they're told is a lot more interesting and more, a lot more geared towards comic books. And right, right. Yeah, that's, it's neat to see someone do like or saying human stories or human interest stories in a comic format where there's no fights or anything. It's just mm. people. Yeah. But what's interesting as an artist and the writer, you got to make it interesting. 
I mean, you can make it, you don't want to make it quote unquote boring. Everyone's got that different aspects of what boring is, but I know boring when I see it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like Jason's stuff, I don't, I don't find it boring. Mm-hmm. Some people might, right? Because it's real, it's like real quiet and slow. Yeah. But I don't know, I just, don't you feel like the human drama in that? So, a lot of stuff out there. So yep. many different types of stories to do. Yeah. So much, so little time, right? So much to do, so little time. Well, Javier, thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great. It's always great talking, uh, you know, comics story with you. Thank you. And if people want to find out more about you, where can they go? Where can they look? Uh, to keep it simple, go to Havzilla.com. That's my main site. Because on the right of there, I have like all the links to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I, I couldn't name all the different handles I have, right? Like yeah. on <laughs> Instagram, it's Javier Los Comics on Twitter, I think it's Javier, maybe underscore Hernandez. And you know what I mean? They're all different. So yeah. go to Havzilla.com and then you can search for my other social networks uh, on the right side of the page. Excellent. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Jamie. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and this was This Is Who I Am. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and you can contact us at whoiampodcast at gmail.com or by phone at 818-308-4066 if you have any questions or comments about the show. Thank you for listening.